The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Studying the book of Job. Some regard it as a difficult book. I think it can be that. If you try to digest every word of it, you'll almost feel that you're suffocating on words, not to, in any way to depreciate anything that God's word has to say. But there are so many men speaking repetitive things, almost drowning poor Job in their speeches. And since we looked last time when Job heard from the man Eliphaz, the first of three friends. He now, in chapter 8, has heard from another friend, Bildad. There's the terrible joke told, who is the shortest man in the Bible? You all know, of course, that's Bildad the shoe height. Okay, you'll get it when you think about it. Bildad has spoken a very angry, sarcastic speech. Probably the summary of it is verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man. He's giving Job the same line. Job, you wouldn't be suffering if you weren't guilty. So just fess up. Stop blowing wind at us and tell us what it is you did that God is punishing you for. Well, Job begins responding to Bildad in chapter 9 by agreeing with him that God does not reject a blameless man. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 and then 25 through the end of Job chapter 9. Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the great bear and Orion and the Pleiades? And the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away, and who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Now let's go to verse 25, where Job is expressing the urgency of his plea. My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say I will forget my complaint and put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I will become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned 
Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, you will yet plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself now. This is God's holy word. I believe it was about two weeks ago my wife and I were watching the Boston Red Sox play baseball on TV, the first place Boston Red Sox. May I comment? Uh, That particular night, it was clear that the home plate umpire definitely had done something to expand the strike zone. Uh, The TV announcers agreed with this, and they don't usually criticize the umpire openly in their broadcast, but they were pointing out, and we were shouting at the TV practically, at the fact that strikes were being called when balls were almost bouncing off the plate. Well, great hitter David Ortiz was up with men on base, and he was called out on strikes with two such very low balls being called strikes. Now, my wife, who is a very impartial judge of such things, was quite excited and unhappy. Naturally, Mr. Ortiz and the Red Sox manager were not entirely happy, and they strolled over to the umpire to politely express their difference of opinion and were sent to the locker room. Well, afterward, I thought about how hard it is to be an umpire. My dad was an umpire when I was in Little League Baseball. I remember my dad's integrity in many, many ways, but surely a father really earns badges for integrity when he calls his own son out on strikes, which my dad did exactly twice in my Little League career. And the fact that I remember that, not with resentment or anger, is a mark, I hope, of admiration for my father. It's hard to be an umpire. People are bound to disagree with you. You're bound to make some genuine mistakes, and occasionally you might even make a mistake that would change the outcome of the game, maybe even of a playoff or a World Series. And you have to live with that. I was thinking to myself, what if... Major League Baseball just said, these umpires are a big annoyance. Let's do away with them. We're going to have no umpires from now on. And the two teams playing one another will have to somehow come to an amicable agreement on what is a strike and what is a ball and who was safe at second and all those things. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine even getting through one batter? A riot would break out. You need someone to judge and to call the play, someone with authority to enforce the rules. Without him, anarchy would reign. Well, today we hear ancient Job, believe it or not, wishing that somehow a spiritual umpire could appear in his circumstances to rule on plays between himself and God. More about that in a few minutes. We've been studying this 
upright man who was suffering greatly for no overt fault of his own, no fault that certainly he could discover. He's already had the riot act read to him by uh, an older friend, Eliphaz, and now by this second friend, Bildad. And Bildad was blunt and sarcastic in the way he spoke, if you want to review chapter 8. There's nothing very diplomatic about what Bildad had to say. Basically, I could condense it to say, Job, we know God rewards good and punishes evil. Will you please stop wasting our time and admit what you've done wrong? Bildad had a black and white God, and God applied his black and white grid to every situation for this man. God will not reject a blameless man. If you're blameless, God would not have done this to you. Well, guess what? Job began by saying, I know it is so. God will not reject a blameless man. Why then has he seemed to reject me when I am blameless? I begin with the first of two main points today to tell you there is a problem being stated here. How can a man be right or be seen as righteous in the sight of God? Job wanted to somehow... uh, identify, if he couldn't identify the fatal sin that he was being judged for or punished for, he was saying, how? How can I get this maladjusted relationship with God cleared up so I can stand before him and he would know me and and be able to speak with me in the same kind of sweet fellowship we once enjoyed? Job says here, "I, I feel like I'm contending with God, and that's a key word. The Hebrew word to contend there is a word that, that implies the playing out of a lawsuit or a court trial, a legal procedure. And if one wished to do this with God, go through a lawsuit with God, Job says, why, I wouldn't be able to answer him once in a thousand times. So how in the world can we work this out? Job imagined a kind of trial going on where God was either the judge or the prosecutor and would make arguments, present evidence against Job, and Job would say, well, I think I'm just about surely going to be condemned, and yet I don't understand how or why. Later on in the book, he was contending this same thing when we came to, if we were to look, you can glance if you want at chapter 23, verse 3. He still has this trial image in his mind, and he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find God, so I might come even to his seat, his seat of authority. I would lay my case out before him and fill my mouth with arguments, and I would know then that he would answer me. Don't we sometimes assume that we've been judged unfairly? Something the Bible says, some law of God or promise of God or something implied, and we we seem to be out of adjustment with it. And we think, well, I think if I was to sit down and talk with God for about 10 minutes, I could probably convince him why I'm a special case and, and why that harsh rule doesn't, shouldn't apply to me, perhaps. And yet, as Job began to daydream about that kind of dialogue with God, he knew that God would also be a terrible, terrifying opponent in any legal procedure. Last week I was at the trustee board meeting of Westminster Seminary and many very able people on that board 
always humbles me to come away. One man is a brilliant, simply brilliant attorney from Texas. And uh, all of us on the board are a little bit in awe of this man. When he takes up an argument, we, we hope that we're not on the opposite side from him because we've got a very strong opponent, if that's the case. And when he argues, you think to yourself, boy, if I had to go to trial, he's the guy I would want sitting at my table. And, uh, but it was interesting because this man was telling us on the board about the fact that he recently, and he's, he's about my age, so he's had a long legal career, and, but recently, for the very first time, he had the opportunity to uh, uh, appeal a case before this, the Supreme Court of the United States. And most of us would have thought, well, wow, you know, here's a guy who could take on the Supreme Court justices. But he said that just entering that chamber, his knees felt like jelly and his mouth felt like it was full of mush. All he could think about was all the great legal minds of the past who had been in that chamber and had tried great landmark cases, and he wondered, what am I doing here? Well, Job asks, how can a man be found in the right before God? He's asking, in New Testament terms, how can I be justified? How can whatever is wrong between me and God be worked out and laid aside so that we have a right standing and we can speak to one another, and I know that I can rest and be at peace in God. One commentator suggests that as much as Job was bereft at the loss of ten children and all of his estates and all of his animals and his income, probably nothing bothered him more than the understanding that he was out of adjustment with God. Because this is a man, when we first meet him in chapter 1, the first thing is said about him is that he had an upright relationship with God. And he prized it. And now, in addition to losing all the money and all the herds and all the children, he feels like he's lost God. And he cannot understand the secret sin that his friends keep saying, you must have committed. In verses 4 through 12 here, Job tells about the greatness of God. He seems to be saying, here are a whole list of reasons why I cannot have direct and easy communication with him, because he is so great. He removes mountains. He shakes the earth. He commands the sun. He must have thought of the constellations in the sky, Ursa Major and the Pleiades and the other Orion and the other constellations. He says, God put those in place. How can I contend with someone who has an occupation like that? He does marvelous things without number. The vast power available to God just awed Job when he thought about it. I'm sure if you watch news at all this past week, you've seen some of the film of tornadoes in the American Midwest. I understand there were almost a hundred possible incidences of tornadoes. Imagine that. In one week in our country, not all of the major destruction, but clouds, funnel clouds sighted and so on. And, you know, in recent years now, everybody's got a phone with a camera on it, and we're seeing these things much more easily and frequently than we used to. And the dread power of these storms coming to smash in an instant the work of man and take away homes and cars and take lives from people. Job thought about a God with that kind of power. And he he said in verse 12, Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? In other words, who would challenge God? 
How would you challenge God if he ever did gain this courtroom audience that he daydreamed about? He's saying, who am I to challenge what God is doing? I would be too dumbstruck to speak before him. But then he says here, this God passes me by and I see him not. He moves on and I don't even perceive him. He not only is vast in his power, but he's, he's not a visible person. That I, Oh, there he is. I wonder if he's got five minutes. He doesn't even know where to find God because he's invisible. I don't mean it in a trifling way to say that God doesn't stop and pose for selfies like candidates for president do. He passes by, and we don't know where he is, but we see the effects of what he has done. How dare we try to deal one-on-one with this God as if we were his equal? Job is the one who's speaking reverently about God, you see. Eliphaz and Bildad came and said, Job, you must not respect God very much if you won't repent. And in so many words, you can see who really respects God. It's Job. He respects him so much that he is bereft for being out of adjustment from him. Job's God was a wild, untamed mystery. He was not a little puppy dog that Job could say to him, go fetch or roll over now. That was the kind of God it seemed like Bildad worshipped. Job's God left every beholder simply overwhelmed at his majesty and his grandeur. He didn't fit in anybody's formula or anybody's box. So the question remains, a live question for Job. How can I be justified, put back in a right relationship with this all-powerful, enormous, all-holy, perfectly just God? All he's done in this first part is pose the question. He hasn't begun to answer it. But then I picked up at verse... 25, when Job starts to say, I need to find an answer. My, wife, my life is slipping away from me here. And he uses analogies that uh, it's like a runner, and he sees his life running on a fast track, or a skiff made of reeds. They made boats out of papyrus reeds in that part of the world, and they would be very lightweight, like a kayak or a canoe, and fast water would carry them swiftly. Or an eagle, he pictures, swooping down. He says, this is my life. I don't have forever to get an answer to this. And so we go into the second point where Job actually proposes three possible solutions to the problem that he has proposed. Two of them, rather quickly, are just overturned as being worthless or impractical, but the third he sees some hope for. The first possible answer, Job says, to his His own dilemma is given in verse 27. Job says, I will forget my complaint. Perhaps I can do this. If I say, in other words, a theoretical proposition, if I say I will forget my complaint, I will just put off my sad face and be of good cheer. This is the smiley face denial option. Just whistle a happy tune and no one will ever know. I'm afraid. Put a smile on. Pack up your troubles in the old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. All will be well. But Job himself knows this doesn't work. 
He knows he can't have an idiotic smile pasted on his face while he's hurting so deeply inside from alienation against God. This first proposal is simply avoid the issue, and Job says, I can't do that. It won't go away. So there's a second possible solution that he gives, and it also starts with if. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, in verse 30. In other words, if I exercise the greatest possible effort I can think of to clean up my act, whether that means moral reformation, spiritual reformation, greater worship, much more prayer, observing more commandments, what? Something that will use religion and morality to clean me up. Washing your hands with lye is a pretty drastic solution. I can't really imagine what lye does to your skin, but it certainly ought to clean up any unwelcome matter on your skin. But look what Job says happens. The minute I do that, you, God, plunge me back into a pit. What's the pit? I think it's the pit of Job's own sins. He says, I can work as hard as I would to get myself clean, but I fall backwards back into my sin, and and I become so dirty again that even the clothes I'm wearing don't want to be on my filthy body. So this too, the morality solution, clean myself up, the religious solution, this too won't work. Every pathetic bridge that's built by a man or a woman striving to build with religion and move closer to God ends up halfway across a large chasm and eventually falling into the canyon for lack of support. Morality won't do it. Religion won't do it. Job has one more possibility. He says, God is not a man, in verse 32, as I am, that I might answer him, or we should come to trial together. But then in 33, and I'm not entirely comfortable with the way the English Standard Version translates it, it says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. I believe the New International Version, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it says, oh, that there were a mediator to stand between us and put his hand. In other words, it's a fervent wish. Oh, that there were a mediator to stand between and put his hand on us both. Job is proposing an umpire. Job 9.33 is an epic statement that to me almost leaps off this page. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us to draw us together. If only, if only a mediator existed. Think about it. It would have to be someone who had a hand upon God, and so it would be good if he was God, and he had a hand upon man, so it would be good if he was man. Oh, if there was such a person who could bring us two together, then I could meet with God. Then I could be justified before God. More than one of you over recent weeks as I've been preaching on Job has, has said something, and I've appreciated you saying, don't, don't hear me wrong, something to the effect that, Pastor, I like the way you steer the subject when we're looking at Job back to Jesus and the gospel at the end of your messages. Well, I thank you for noticing that, and I know you're, you're giving a compliment, but I want to be sure that you understand that I am not artificially manipulating the Word of God to somehow twist it so that at the end of every chapter of Job, I say, wait a minute, I've got to fit Jesus in here. 
I've got to have the Jesus ending. Listen, I hope you would understand, I don't have to manipulate a Jesus ending to this chapter, do I? What is Job saying, if only there needs to be? One who can have an arm upon God, one who can have an arm upon man, and bring the two together. Here is the Old Testament, which is one piece of fabric from the same God who wrote the New Testament, anticipating the need that Jesus Christ came to fulfill. Jesus is here in Job uh, 9.33. I don't have to insert him there. He is the arbiter or the mediator that Job is visualizing. Could the gospel of Christ possibly be any more clearly depicted than this? Job is stating the very same need that Paul spoke of in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony given at the proper time. God from all eternity foresaw the need of what we would call an arbitration, binding arbitration agreement between man and himself. The Bible calls it a covenant. God the Creator, the Holy Judge, determines from all eternity that he will make peace with persons who are alienated from him or set against him or not in a right adjustment to him by utilizing the work of his mediator. Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, will put an arm on them both. And at his cross, he settled the broken relationship and justified believing men and women to come before God again. The staggering wonder about what God was doing here. He was incarnate in human flesh in his Son, this same high, exalted creator God that Job could not say enough about in terms of how much he feared him and how far he was from being one with him, nevertheless stooped and came close and became visible and understandable and available to save in the person of Jesus. So there really is someone who stands in the presence of God. Job, I think, was beginning to at least guess that it was possible. In a later chapter, Job 16, verse 19, he seems to have a revelation from God that this isn't just a vain hope, but, but maybe indeed it's real because he said there, even now my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. And he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. This was Job the prophet seeing what would come way down the road in the New Testament era in the gospel of Jesus Christ when the mediator did come. Like baseball, Christianity needs an umpire, but not to call balls and strikes, not to yank a man out because he arrived a tenth of a second too late at second base. Our mediator, Jesus, bridges an otherwise yawning, chasm between man and God that we cannot bridge by any effort of our own. Our mediator, Jesus, bridges the relationship between God and man that is broken and beyond repair by our efforts. Our mediator, Jesus, restores that fellowship that Adam enjoyed with 
his father when he walked in the cool of the garden and they spoke face to face. Our mediator, Jesus, was the umpire who didn't simply have to make a tough call. He had to die to bring sinful, suffering mankind together with a holy and just God. So to be a Christian means to know God, be right with God, through the one mediator, our high priest, Jesus Christ, who bought us with his blood and today represents us at the right hand of God. Job was a helper in writing the need for the New Testament gospel here in Job 9.33. Thanks be to God for that. Father, thank you for your mediator. Job distantly foresaw him, understood the need for him, knew that he didn't know anyone around him who could fulfill this, but so he leaves us yearning for himself in the midst of his dilemma of pain and loss when he saw through your revelation to him that it would be Christ who came to meet the need he spelled out. Thank you, Father. May we look to this mediator and no other to make us right before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.